If you have enjoyed Baker Street 2033, why not consider supporting the second series? Go to ko-fi.com slash neilfitzgerald. That's ko-fi.com slash neilfitzgerald. Your support would be most welcome. The Glass Cryptographer by Neil Fitzgerald Episode 1 The Iron Maiden Of all the many intrigues I have written of concerning the world's preeminent consulting detective, none has the singular strangeness of that which I am now about to relate. Certainly no precursor in our long dealings with the criminal underworld can approach its alien setting. The case of the Sinophor may share some of its monstrous complexities, and that of the Black Sun bore elements of its otherworldly arcana. Yet the concern which we were most recently engaged upon is wholly without parallel. Indeed, I fear I lack the very words needed to describe the uncanniness of the fantastic world which we now inhabit. For whilst this is still London in its geographical actuality, it is a London quite unlike the one we had hitherto known, or could even have conjured up through some feat of the imagination, not even the formidable mind of Sherlock Holmes. I expect the reader will doubt much of what I have to tell of, as I would surely do in their place, but I ask them to persist to the end of my narrative when much will have become clearer and, I hope, more credible. For the first part of my tale, I must rely solely upon the reports of my faithful friend. It was he who subsequently decided to involve me, or rather, to invoke me, so that not for the first time, though never in such bizarre circumstances, does my entire existence rely on his intervention. But I have dallied long enough in my preamble. I will endeavour to retell the events surrounding the beginning of this extraordinary case, as Holmes related them to me. I awoke to find myself standing in a cylindrical sarcophagus of pristine alabaster whiteness, and of a material wholly unknown to me, its peculiar smoothness neither that of wood nor any metal I knew of. Above and below me were myriad tubes and several square electric lights, which were markedly bright, whilst the sides contained a variety of mechanised nibs. Before me, in what I took to be the lid or door, although it seemed to be sealed hermetically, was a strip of opaque glass which frustrated my gaze entirely. I was attired in my usual top hat and morning suit, my boots were polished, and my frock coat's pockets were filled with the paraphernalia of a confirmed pipe smoker, a long-stemmed briar wood, a full tobacco pouch, and matches. Elsewhere I found my notebook, fountain pen, magnifying glass and morocco case. You frown, Watson, but I was struck by the lack of fatigue which I usually experience upon waking, an unavoidable side effect of a 7% solution of cocaine, but a desire to exit the casket meant I did not ponder this oddness as perhaps I should have. The only sound I could hear was a staccato noise which was regular in frequency and pitch until a clunk indicated something was happening and the door slid open in a most curious way, as if being pulled to by an invisible hand. 
Once outside, I beheld a world of extraordinary change, which the sarcophagus's strange construction and mechanics had hinted at. It was as if the entire room had been dipped in whitewash, for the alabaster whiteness of the casket's interior was replicated on the walls, floor and ceiling. The room was entirely without natural light, though electric light was plentiful. The only visible means of exit was a door of frosted glass at the far end. The sarcophagus I had awoken in was one of four lined up in a row along one wall. Each had the same glass front, and I scrutinised several, but found nothing to be visible inside their gloomy interiors, when a sudden buzz and clunk made me swing round. The door of the one I had awoken in had suddenly closed of its own volition. Astounded, I returned to examine it anew. In so doing, my hands momentarily brushed the front of the glass, which brought about a fantastic display of light, a phantasmagoria weaved like a tapestry to the very heart of the glass. My initial reference of an optical illusion soon dissipated in the light of the script which appeared, leading me to deduce that this marvellous apparition was somehow intrinsic to the sarcophagus. This magical parchment glowed eerily on the glass panel in front of me. I initially perceived it to be a cryptogram written in the most abstruse code I had ever encountered. I could get no handle on it without the cipher. Still, I was determined to decrypt it and reached inside for notebook and pen when something quite extraordinary happened. As I leaned against the glass, the document disappeared and was replaced by a wholly new one. This one, however, contained English lettering. I scrutinised the script closely. It was written in a regular hand that betrayed nothing of the personality behind it. Indeed, its total uniformity seemed to suggest an automaton had written it. The content, though, was somewhat more revealing. In height, he was rather over six feet, and so excessively lean that he seemed to be considerably taller. His eyes were sharp and piercing, save during those intervals of torpor to which I have alluded, and his thin, hawk-like nose gave his whole expression an air of alertness and decision. His chin, too, had the prominence and squareness which marked the man of determination. His hands were invariably blotted with ink and stained with chemicals, yet he was possessed of extraordinary delicacy of touch, as I frequently had occasion to observe when I watched him manipulating his fragile philosophical instruments. Why, I exclaimed, those are my words. That is precisely how I described you in the chronicle of our first encounter, a study of Scarlet. A description abounding in your usual romantic flourishes, Watson all in lieu of precise data. I would have exchanged six feet three and a half inches for the vague, rather over six feet. I tried not to betray my frustration at this remark. But what the devil is the meaning of all this? Aha! What if I were to tell you that every legible excerpt was an excerpt from one of your tales concerning our cases? More interesting still was that each quotation gave a description of me. So, if you were imprisoned inside some bizarre tomb, then these were surely epitaphs of a sort engraved upon its lid, a practice entirely consistent with that found in ancient Egypt. Your deductions are to your credit, Watson, and show that the time you have spent observing my methods has not been entirely wasted. Only in one crucial aspect have you erred, an error which, alas, unravels your hypothesis entirely. And pray... What error have I made? If I had been entombed within the sarcophagus, I was entombed alive, which would point to a rather profound carelessness on the parts of the coroner, embalmer and undertaker. No, no, Watson. Buried alive with a full pouch of tobacco will not do. 
So, the sarcophagus was not a tomb. Precisely. Now you are getting somewhere, Watson. Then what was it? I am quite stumped, Holmes. Not if you apply deductive reasoning. Since I had appeared in this remarkable contraption, and this bizarre document was affixed to the front of it, it is a simple step to then infer that it might be a set of instructions. Instructions? But for whom? Holmes smiled. For whom indeed? A veritable Tokmada, Watson. You mean to say it was a torture device? I was flabbergasted. You will recall I mentioned the mechanical nibs in the inner chamber. My hypothesis led me to further examine the interior, and using my glass I found strands of silk on several of these nibs. I therefore deduced that this was some unique variety of Iron Maiden. An Iron Maiden? An iron casket with lethal spikes lining its interior. It has long been presumed to be a fictional implement in the torturer's arsenal, but here was proof that it was not. So, who was the Grand Inquisitor Holmes, and what information were they hoping to extract from you? I had no time to consider such questions, Watson. As I had no marks about my person, I could infer that I had had a fortunate escape. But for how much longer that good fortune would continue, I knew not. My torturers might return at any moment to continue their barbaric interrogations. It thus became imperative that I escape from this torture chamber. I approached the door of frosted glass and saw that it possessed neither lock nor any visible handle or knob. A panel of highly polished black glass on the wall beside the door caught my eye, and its proximity suggested it was connected to the door. I deduced that it must be a combination lock of some kind even though no numbers were visible, as a matrix of greasy fingerprints were clearly visible upon inspection with my glass. A tap on one of the fingerprints brought about another curious illumination, a numerical grid comprising the ordinal numbers from 1 to 9. Then it was only a matter of trying various permutations of this fingerprint matrix... Of course, I had no knowledge of the number of digits involved in the combination. One fingerprint could represent a repeat use of a number, increasing the permutations to nine infinite possibilities. Here a study of human habits over the course of my career came to my aid. It was easy to deduce brevity, the likely option, given both the ascendancy of indolence in human nature and the incapacity of the general populace to recall pi to more than a few decimal places. And thus it proved. A four-digit sequence on the 21st attempt to open the door finally freeing me from the room. Sherlock Holmes will return in The Glass Cryptographer, Episode 2. If you have enjoyed this podcast, you might like to try others by the same writer and producer, such as Dear Old Blood, Notes on a Wittgenstein Noir, and Modern Gothic. The writer now has a cracking idea for a second series of Baker Street 2033. So, you could also consider supporting the writer at buymeacoffee.com slash Neil